I don't think people realize we changed Texas state law to allow our market entry into Austin. And how did we do that? I flew down there three separate times and met personally face-to-face -face with all 12 members of the Transportation Committee of the State Senate. And I made sure any questions they had about the regulatory rule that we're proposing to change, they asked me personally. Yeah. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. And I think another other founders need to understand too is you're not trying to get everybody to love your business. You're trying to get them to neutral. Not everybody's going to love your business, what you're doing. Maybe yeah. they have concerns. You need to get them to a point where I'm not going to block this. Okay. And the only way to get folks there is you have to meet them face to face. You have to do the hard work. Hiring the lobbyist is step one of 20 steps. Yeah. And, and there's no shortcuts there. Hey, climbers, welcome back to another episode of Climb by VSC. I am thrilled to have on a friend and former investment from my last fund, uh, Frank Rieg, who's the CEO of Revel. If you're in New York, believe me, you've seen Revel, you've seen their blue Teslas, you've seen the mopeds. If you're not, Revel started as a urban mobility company that has now become a much, much bigger thing. So we're going to chat about that today. Frank, I just want to start by saying thank you, man, for joining me on Climb in person. Yeah, Jay, it's really nice to be here. So yeah. appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's let's start with that journey a little bit because I, I hinted in my my intro the origins of Revel. When you and I met in 2018, um, I don't think either of us was thinking about this as a climate impact company. So talk to me about the the early days. Why the mopeds? Why micro mobility? And then we'll dive into to what it's become today. Yeah, Jay, I think you hit on it well. I mean, we first met in 2018 uh, when you were at Launch Capital and you guys ended up making uh, an investment during our seed round. Yeah. Uh, so you've obviously seen the changes in Revel over the last five, six years. Um, but back to your question, this company started out as shared electric mopeds. Uh, that was the vision in early 2018. And the reason why my co-founder and I wanted to do that was pretty simple. Mopeds are in every international city across this globe. Yeah. Uh, but they're not really in the U.S. And we just thought that vehicle type would be perfect for a city like New York. Uh, just to be able to get from point A to point B, uh, conveniently, cheaply. Um, and in 2018, we ended up launching a small pilot with 60, 70 mopeds and grew the business from there. But that, that was the founding. Uh, that was the founding that was by the time we met, actually, because I think you had like three months uh, around that time, like that first 90 days of data. Uh, is what you sent me over. And I said, okay, let me let me come over and spend some time with you guys. So yeah. very, very early days, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it accelerated very quickly. I remember having the idea in around January, 2018. Yeah. Uh, by April, 2018, my co-founder and I quit our jobs and we're doing this full time. Ended up raising a million dollars from 57 different people during an angel round. Yeah. And then launched mopeds in the streets in New York in July. Yeah. So basically idea to hardware in the streets was six months. Yeah. Which is crazy for a, a call it hardware company, right? Yeah. You had to go and source these mopeds yeah. and actually get them street ready. So, so talk to me about those, those early days. I mean, why New York? Like that was the, the thing that first got me is like, Hey, if you're going to test something out on the streets in the U S there are, you know, less pedestrian, less regulation heavy cities than New York. So why here? Um, Maybe you're not going to like this answer, but it's as simple as my co-founder and I lived here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah. And I remember him and I were talking about this and it's like, do we launch in Austin first? Do we move to Miami and launch there? The regulatory landscape is easier. But then we just thought we live here. This city is massive. There's so many people. If we can get through the regulatory landscape, it's going to work here. Yeah. Um, so we ended up staying here and launching here. Yeah. And since then, obviously, it's evolved quite a bit, right? Um, and and some some ups and downs, I think, in that that transition from shared mobility to 
urban electrification, which yep. is I think the, the direction that you've really been on the last couple of years. Talk, like, let's talk about that inflection point. Like where in that journey, mopeds on the road, you know, the, the, the share time is picking up, the time per ride is picking up. All of that is looking great. You guys set your ambitions on something much bigger. So take me to that inflection point. I think the inflection point started in probably early 2019, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, we started to go out for a Series A that spring um, and then sort of locked in the Series A that summer, early fall. Yeah. But during that entire process, the one piece of feedback I kept hearing consistently was, love the team, love the execution that you guys are showing. Is the TAM big enough? Yeah. Is the market big enough for two-wheeled mobility in cities here in the US? Which is crazy, by the way, not, not, to, not to cut you off there, but like, we had seen companies like Scoot and Move and Bird and Lime raise massive, massive, massive rounds, billion dollar, $2 billion valuations. Some of them went public, much to their detriment. And yet investors are still asking you if micromobility is a big enough market. So like, like what was that? Yeah. I think mopeds is a little different though. Okay. Because when you're selling that vision of the market for two-wheeled mobility, um, it's almost like you're taking market share from walking, mm -hmm. right? You can, you can sell that. Uh, when it comes to mopeds with a license plate, you need a driver's license. Um, I think that market opportunity starts to shrink a bit. Mm. Um, and I took that feedback seriously and I started to think, you know what's a really big vision? Electrifying all four-wheel vehicles in big, dense cities here in the US. Yeah. Uh, no one's going to argue about that market share. Right. And what that vision is going to look like yep. 10 years from now. Yeah. Um, so that was the initial sort of grease that started to get our minds thinking about what is the problem here currently? Why is the EV transition in cities here in the US stuck in neutral? And how do we unstick that? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, which obviously I can talk about. Yeah. No, let, let's talk about that because what that led to is, you know, in a city that has had its share of challenges with Uber and Lyft and the taxi TLCs. Uh, you took, I think, quite a contrarian bet to get into the rideshare business. So, yeah, why why rideshare and, and why did the economics make sense uh, to go and do that? Yeah. So if you look at the EV transition in the U.S. right now, to date, most of the folks that have EVs are high net, high, high net worth individuals, yeah. usually in suburban areas, outside of cities. Um, and most of the charging infrastructure to date in this city, in this country, including folks like Tesla, it's mostly around range anxiety. Mm -hmm, yeah. Building along highways, building in suburban areas and strip malls and things like that. When you actually look at cities, when you look at Washington, D.C., when you look at New York, when you look at Boston, when you look at Chicago, even San Francisco itself, people think there's a lot of infrastructure in the Bay Area. There's literally nothing. Really? It's abysmal. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you think about why is that the case, it's this classic chicken or egg problem. Fast charge infrastructure, you're going to put up the capital expenditures to put that into the ground in cities in the U.S. It's very expensive. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to spend that money, you better have utilization for that infrastructure. Um, but guess what? Not a lot of people have EVs in cities. Yeah. And who the hell wants an EV in a city like New York if there's not charging infrastructure everywhere? So here you are, you're stuck. You were 2023. everyone's talking about this EV transition over the next 10 years and nothing's There's happening. not enough chargers. No, yeah. Nothing's happening. Yeah. And we're stuck. So I started to realize, okay, the way we can really accelerate this and move quicker than anybody else and be a first mover is to have an integrated strategy. Yeah. It's to bring utilization, captive utilization to my own infrastructure. So I'm bringing supply and demand at the same time. Yes. Right? Yeah. So we're going out there, specifically in New York right now, we are building a very dense network of fast charging infrastructure way before anybody else. Yep. We're going to have 400 charging stalls in the ground in the next 15 to 18 months. Yeah. 
yep. right? Um, and then we're bringing captive utilization in the form of all electric rideshare. Mm-hmm. Uh, started with 50 vehicles. Today we're sitting here, we have 550. Yeah. And we're only accelerating that, that growth. So let, let's sort of go back to that, that initial bet, right? You've done some really contrarian things, I would say. And, and you know, contrarian gets thrown around in, in, in VC world, but, but I'll highlight some of them. Hiring your drivers instead of 1099ing them, right? Putting chargers in the ground with equity dollars initially, right? I know now you've, you've kind of diversified your, your capital stack, but initially it was, okay, we're going we're gonna to go test this out with equity dollars. Um, you know, along the way, which of these contrarian bets do you think was the sort of hardest or kept you up at night the most and has paid off? And then we'll, we'll talk about the inverse of that. Which ones did you kind of do and, and, and learn from uh, taking, taking on? Yeah. So let's take the employer model first. Uh, from the day this company started five, six years ago in 2018, even with mopeds, every single person at this company, from battery swampers to customer support agents, they're a W-2 employee. Yeah. So that was just kind of an ethos we've had. I just think if you can't build a business and provide people social security, and provide people unemployment insurance, um, maybe you should think about that. Yeah. Right? So that's just a philosophical grounding that we've had sure. from the beginning. Sure. Um, and then if you take a look at the markets that we're in, a market like New York, there is no such thing as the part-time gig worker doing rideshare in a city like New York. Yeah. Talk to any Uber, Lyft, Revel taxi driver. They're driving 40 plus hours a week. Yeah. There is no part-time anything. 40, 40 would be low for a lot 40 of 40 would drivers. be low. Yeah. Right? So we're in a market where full-time employment makes sense. You're going to drive 50, 60 hours a week for us. Yes. Um, This is not a substitute teacher driving seven hours on a Sunday for some pocket change. Which, to be clear, is the vision that I think the executives of Uber and Lyft pitched when they were growing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you you get out of class as a college student, pick up your car, do three hours of rides, you've paid for, you know, beer money. Yeah, that's not reality in Chicago, yeah. New York, the Bay Area. Yeah. These folks are driving 40, 50, 60 hours a week, uh, the vast majority. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so t- coming back to the sort of contrarian bets, right? So so W2'd everybody um, in a world where everybody was 1099ing. Seems like that's worked out. Folks want to come drive for Revel, right? Um, well, getting back to your point yeah. about infrastructure and using equity Yeah, dollars. yeah, that's it. that was my next thing, yeah. So let's just talk reality here, right? This podcast is about uh, climate tech companies and uh, how do these companies scale and get where they need to be. Um, so let's simulate a conversation with an infrastructure fund, Yeah, right? You name them. They're all over the place. There's yep. a lot of them. Yep. Uh, they all want to invest in the climate future, unless yes. they say they do. Sure. Uh, and a lot of them are, let's say, core plus type funds. Uh, so someone like Revel sits down with them and gets their first question. Where's the guaranteed revenue source yeah, for the infrastructure you're building? Yep. Right. Where's the 30 year power purchase agreement? Right. Cause that's the world they live in. Yeah. Um, we're not there yet. Right. What I am building in New York is an EBITDA profitable rideshare business. And we're continuing to get closer to that. Yeah. Um, and then once I have that, then I can go to those infrastructure funds and say, hey, here's a multi-hundred million dollar rideshare business in New York that we have scaled. It is now profitable in its own right. Now let's raise infrastructure dollars at a cost of capital that makes sense because you're seeing this revenue stream from rideshare that is feeding that infrastructure build out. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, though, I have to go to funds that maybe play in emerging infrastructure. Yep. Uh, more venture capital-like dollars. That's just a reality of the situation. Yeah. And we need to raise at the top co, continue to build the company in an integrated manner. But two to three years from now, absolutely split this company apart, raise infrastructure funding separately at a much lower cost of capital. Yeah. 
but that's not reality today in 2023. I have to yeah. build the business first. Yeah. So just to no, 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 kind of level set with folks about yeah, and and I think look that that's 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 natural, right? I think the the inflection point that I talk to founders at, which is that sort of that seed to Series A journey, right? You, you guys are a little bit further, but as you know, I've been a seed investor, you know, going back even to my last couple of funds. There is that chasm you have to cross mm-hmm. from we have found product market fit, mm-hmm. we know the customers that are looking for it, we cannot manufacture enough of these or guarantee enough revenue for the manufacturing that we have to do. And therefore we spend really expensive equity dollars and we dilute our, ourselves and we dilute our employees. And ultimately, um, you know, the, the, the folks that profit are the series C stage funds that come in and, yep. and when the company exits for less than it was worth in the last round, they're the only ones that make money, right? That stack needs to change. And there, there's some great funds that we've talked to and co-invest with that are finding ways to do that, right? Match an equity fund with a credit fund. So we give you both sides of it. It's, it's not there yet. And the reason I lament that it's not there yet is so much of climate investing or climate companies today uh, is hardware. It yep. needs to be. We are, we are building, solving problems in the world of atoms. We cannot do it solely with bits. And yet the capital structure doesn't exist today. So I, I'm phrasing it as a question, like what have you seen that gives you some promise that it's changing? Or is it just that you have to cross that chasm through sheer force of will until the capital markets catch up to you? Yeah. Um, we would not be here today without our largest equity investor, which is BlackRock, the yeah. Climate Infrastructure Group. Um, one of the things that they understood right off the bat was, here's the large equity check to lead your Series B. We understand the vision. Also, here's $50 million in senior debt, no financial covenants, a very reasonable interest rate, Yeah. no principal or interest payments for five years. Wow. We're in it for the long term. Let's build together. Yeah. You're only going to get that at certain funds with people that understand the strategy, that people understand where you're going to be in two, three years. Yeah. Um, so I would say one of the hardest things is just finding that investor because there aren't many. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful the ecosystem is changing as we're having more yeah. of these conversations. And then, but And then, you know, you, you mentioned everything about climate tech is about we need hardware. Yeah. Right. Uber and Lyft scale so quickly. Why? Because they leveraged millions of gas assets, a century of gas station infrastructure that already existed. Yeah. Okay. Rideshare in the state of California and rideshare in New York City, the two biggest markets in the U.S. by far, by state or city mandate, have to be electric by 2030. Yeah. Fully. That's right. Fully. In New York, that's 80,000 vehicles need to go electric in six years. Yeah. That means we need six to 8,000 public fast charging stalls. 8,000. Yeah. Yeah. Because basically it's 10 rideshare vehicles for every stall. And that is just electrifying rideshare. I'm not talking about consumers. I'm not talking about third-party fleets. I'm not talking about anybody else. We need 8,000 charging stalls in New York City by 2030 if we're going to electrify this entire sector. Yeah. So it makes you realize the sort of gap that we have here and what needs to be filled. Yeah. So taking the flip side of it, some of the early bets that you've taken, which ones, looking back with sort of some hindsight, would you have done differently? Um, I think in 2019, after we raised the Series A, we had told investors, we're raising the Series A because we're bringing our moped business nationally. I think we got caught up in sort of that lime and bird and growth at all costs. Um, and the economics, the economics we saw on that moped business initially in New York did not translate when we went to other markets outside of New York. It didn't translate in Miami. It didn't translate in DC. 
And we kept forcing it though. We kept launching more markets because that's what everybody else was doing. So I, if I could go back and change something, it would have been, let's use that capital and let's really focus on the markets that work like San Francisco and New York. Let's not go to Austin, which is essentially a small town. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you actually look at the population and the density. And, and was it just not to sort of harp on painful moments? Was it the, the volume of utilization? Was it the operational inefficiency of having to cover that much ground in a city that size to, you know, charge and battery swap these things? Like, what, what was the, the real learning there? Yeah. Um, I think the real learning there is you need to be in markets with a certain density of population. Yeah. Um, and a total just market population size. Mm -hmm. So you need total just magnum, you know, sort of like a magnitude of like population. And then you also need a density to go alongside of that. Yep. And there are only a few certain cities that check those boxes. Yeah. And places like Miami and Austin and Oakland, they do not check it. Just because of the, the urban sprawl. and Urban yeah. sprawl, you, yeah. you, you just don't have it. Um, and that's one of the things we're seeing in the rideshare business that makes us so excited is rideshare in a city like New York, it is very profitable. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing the metrics right now as we've gone from 50 to 550 cars. Uh, the amount of demand here, there's a million rideshare trips a day in New York. And pricing wow. is very rational, as you probably know, Jay. Yeah. Living here, you know what people charge in yeah, terms yeah, of the yeah. incumbents, totally. even Revel. Um, the business makes a ton of sense in a city like New York. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure those initial transitions to we're going to put fast chargers on the ground uh, was not easy. No. Uh, so, so let's talk about that. What were some of the initial uh, hurdles that you faced, both internal and external as a company, trying to shift the model from we fundamentally make our money from, you know, a uh, uh, share, you know, the, the, the moped micromobility to now actually we're shifting this business towards rideshare and towards putting uh, electricity in the ground. Yeah. Um, I'll get to that in a moment, but okay. just for folks listening, um, I think it's important just to like understand the shift that we did. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Um, at the end of 2019, my co-founder and I kept talking about the electrification of four wheels. How do we really electrify mobility in cities beyond, let's say, just our moped product, which we started with? And we started to look at who is doing it in a big way. And if you look at Tesla, mm -hmm. right? Tesla, 10 years before anybody else, built this massive nationwide network of fast charge infrastructure, right? Why? To sell cars. To sell more Teslas. That was their real business. <laughs> but guess what? 10 years later, that network of infrastructure is the reason why they're going to crush every other OEM right now. Mm -hmm. Right? And everybody knows it. Yeah. Nobody's talking about it, but they have this massive lead on the infrastructure network that is a huge competitive moat. Yeah. Okay? We're doing the same exact thing in the biggest rideshare markets, building out a dense network of fast charge infrastructure for anybody else to sell rides. Mm -hmm. That's the real business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But 10 years from now, that network of infrastructure we're building in some of the biggest rideshare markets here in the US, that is our competitive moat. That's going to allow us to win. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's really taking that analogy that Tesla did, but just bringing it to city shared mobility. The scale, the scale of a city as opposed to along the highways. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's really the same playbook. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's easy though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so getting back to your question around just to shift from mopeds to now this integrated strategy around infrastructure and all electric rideshare. Um, you can imagine that first conversation with the board. Right? I, I know some of those board members. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> um, I think the way any founder needs to start a conversation like that is, this is a pilot. Mm. We're going to dedicate a very specific amount of capital to launch something. 
We're going to see if it works because we really believe in this. And this is why. Yeah. Um, and that conversation happened over like a year. We sort of kept coming back to the board um, with an idea, but really thought out in terms of what we're doing, how much capital is going to cost and what we're going to prove. Um, and at the end of the day, it just, this is the human element. It just requires trust between the board and the management team and, and the founders. Yeah. And that trust was there, thankfully. Um, I could see a lot of the other companies that said would have never happened. Well, the, the challenge I think is like, you know, in our business, MVPs, especially in software, it's very easy, right? Oh, let's yeah. build this thing. Let's send it to a customer. Let's, let's see if they buy it. And if they buy it, okay, then we build on top of that MVP. When you are building at the scale that Revel is, also as a, as a going operating business, right? You're not starting from scratch here. I mean, what is the MVP for, for fast charging, right? Like, I, I, how do you get those initial proof points to say this experiment is worth investing, you know, $50 million in as an example? Yeah. Um, before I answer that, I'll also just say, you have to get your internal employees on board. Yeah, of course. You know, there's the board and then there's everyone that's working for you. Yeah. Uh, and they need to understand the shift that's happening. Why are we doing something? Why are we spending capital there? Um, I thought we're a shared electric moped company. Um, and again, that is not easy. Yeah. Uh, it just requires, honestly, just steadfast sort of persistence. And we're doing this. And this is why. Was yes, there, I was will take internal feedback. Um, from certain folks, yeah. There was. I think anytime a company goes through a shift like that, yeah. people that don't agree, they leave. Yeah. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. That's okay. That's the natural life cycle of companies sometimes. Okay. Um, and then in terms of the MVP, you know, we found the ultimate unicorn site. We found a former Pfizer manufacturing facility in, in the middle of Brooklyn. Yeah. That had seven megawatts of power ready to tap into. We didn't even have to get a power grade from Con Ed, nothing. And we had a landlord that just loved the company, loved the vision. And we went from lease signing to a ribbon cutting with the secretary of the DOE five months later. That's crazy. That's, so yeah. that was a unicorn site. Yes. Uh, most of the sites in our pipeline right now take a minimum two to three years to go from, you know, just initial, you know, site LOY negotiations to ribbon cutting. Yeah. Uh, that one was five months. Yeah. Uh, so that was sort of a unicorn site that we got on the ground, 25 fast chargers in the middle of Brooklyn. And we paired that with initially 50 EVs to, to launch this. Yeah. And now as you've expanded those sites, you know, what are the, the, the lessons that you've taken from that, that first site that have now applied to? You open one in Manhattan. You've got, you know, other ones coming, I think, yep. down the pike in the, the five yep. boroughs. So, um, yeah, what, what, did, what did you learn from that first one that you've applied uh, in pretty short order in the last couple of years? Yeah, we were talking about this at our monthly infrastructure meeting uh, just literally last week. Um, the first site was too easy. <laughs> it was too easy. Yeah. That is not infrastructure in big cities. Yes. It is really hard. I call it like the Venn diagram of problems. You've got zoning. Cuts out 90% of the city right there. Just yeah. zoning right? Yeah. Uh, then you have permitting. That could be department of buildings. That can be, is this a parking garage? Are there fire sprinklers in here? What's the fire code for charging? And that varies by city to, is it a rational landlord? Do they actually want to get a business deal done? Yeah. Um, to, hey, I don't want to sign anything for really less than 20 years. Um, so that's kind of a blocker, right? The last thing I want to do is get this infrastructure back in five or 10, just when it's most valuable. Yeah. Um, to power. Is power available? If it is available, when is the timeline to actually get that power to the site? Is it three years? Is it two years? 
You can imagine that conversation with a landlord as well and say, hey, Con Ed or PG&E, it's going to take three years to get me power. Can I get free rent for three years? Right? You can imagine how that conversation goes. Yeah. So yeah, this, this stuff is really hard. Um, but one thing I've learned is at the end of the day, infrastructure for fast charging cities, it's essentially real estate. Mm-hmm. Real estate is a local business with local relationships, whether it's at the utility level or the landlord level. Yeah. I think word has gotten out in cities like San Francisco and New York that Revel is serious. Yeah. They have a lot of projects in the pipeline. They are willing to sign the right deal. They talk to Con Ed or PG&E literally daily at this point because yeah. we have such a pipeline of sites that allows us to go faster than anybody else. Yeah. So you you talked about building those local relationships, right? So so utilities, the real estate, the landowners, uh, the folks that we haven't really touched on, although you've kind of hinted around it, is the regulators yep. and is local government. And what I've been really impressed now, you know, following your journey the last almost five years now, we met August of, of 2018, is you've turned folks that were initially detractors into fans. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of our, our founders that are listening would love to understand, you know, what are the two or three things that you've learned about operating with local governments, with them, really hand in hand with them, that you feel like other folks are, are, are doing wrong and could do better? I think one thing we did off the bat as, as myself and my co-founder we viewed working with government as something that is just as important as your unit economics. Yeah. This is not something you hire a lobbyist on and forget about. Yeah. That's what a lot of startups do. So I'll give you a very tangible example. We launched mopeds in Austin, right? In 2020. I don't think people realize we changed Texas state law to allow our market entry into Austin. I didn't even know that. Actually. A New York small moped startup went into Austin State Capitol and got the state Senate to change law to allow our market entry. Wow. And how did we do that? Yes, we hired a lobbyist that we thought could potentially get the job done. But then I flew down there three separate times yeah. and met personally face-to-face with all 12 members of the Transportation Committee of the state Senate. And I made sure any questions they had about the regulatory rule that we're proposing to change, they asked me personally. Yeah. And let's have a conversation. Yeah. And I think another other founders need to understand too is you're not trying to get everybody to love your business. You're trying to get them to neutral. Hmm. Wait, elaborate on that. What, what, what do you mean? Um, not everybody's going to love your business, what you're doing. Maybe yeah. they have concerns. But, but, but they're still going to let it pass through. You need to get them to a point where I'm not going to block this. Okay, got it. Understood. I'm not going to go out there at your, your press conference and say, I love it, but I'm not going to block it. Yeah. And the only way to get folks there is you have to meet them face-to-face. You have to do the hard work. Hiring the lobbyist is step one of 20 steps. Yep. yep. And, and there's no shortcuts there. Yeah. I'm flying to LA and San Francisco this month to meet with certain folks that I need on my side. And I have to do it myself. You can't give that job to just the GR person. And, and what are those conversations like? Because I'm sure every city has different concerns about allowing rideshare at the scale, allowing charging and, you know, within their sort of areas. Every city cares about, I think, different things. Politicians care about re-election. What are the objections that are brought up in those conversations and how do you, how do you navigate them? I'll give you a current one right now. San Francisco. Yeah. What is the biggest policy fight right now in San Francisco? Autonomous vehicles. Yep. Yep. I need to make sure every politician in that city realizes we're not autonomous. Yeah. We are building charging infrastructure for the entire city to use. It's not behind a fence. Yep. Just for some robo taxis. 
This is for everyone's benefit. Because guess what? Every time we want to put 20, 30 fast chargers somewhere in that city, it's going to go up for zoning and community board approvals. Which I'm sure in San Francisco is hard enough already because they're already talking about a shortage of housing. Exactly. And now do we zone this for a fast charger or do exactly. we zone it for- So this is a very tangible example of yeah. the only way to make sure your business can grow in these markets is you're doing the hard work on the ground. You're talking to people. You're making sure they know what your company is about and what you're doing. Yeah. And the benefits you're bringing to that city. If you expect to do that just through a lobbyist or to hire a GR person, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. How do you engage with, with regulators in those early days? though? Before you have the venture dollars or whatever to go hire a lobbying firm, do you go to like city meetings and, and, and meet with like, do these folks even want to meet with you when you're a startup? Like talk to me about that early phase of building a company hand in hand with, with local government. Yeah. There's the stage we're at now, yeah. which is, you know, I just did a DC trip. Uh, making sure that folks in DC understand some of our concerns around IRA and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and folks down there, for instance, know exactly who we are because um, we're at a certain stage. Yeah. Back in 2018, when I was running around with a PowerPoint, uh, it's a very different story. Um, I would say one of the things that we did right off the bat was we did have some advisory board members. Mm. We gave them a little piece of equity in Revel to work with us. So I got the former founding member of CityBike to work with us. I got the former uh, head of car to go in New York City. Yep. Folks remember that sort of like yeah, a, I remember them. Uh, you know, a small uh, car rental service uh, owned by Daimler here in New York. Um, just those two folks alone making the right connections to let's say New York City DOT yeah. for a conversation. Then it's on me, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It's on me and my co-founder. We have to deliver at that point. But sort of you have to go out there and network. And how did I network with those folks? Cold LinkedIn messages. Yeah. That's how I initially got- Really? Yeah. And, and they responded. They, they, they engaged. I've gotten multiple investors on my cap table by a cold outreach email. Wow. Um, anybody that says cold outreach is terrible, you need a warm, uh, I, I think it's not working hard enough, to be honest. They're saying the wrong things in that cold outreach email. Yeah. I think that, that, <laughs> that initial uh, seed investment from Maniv was, was a cold outreach. Yeah, right through their website. Yeah. I just did one the other day. Really? Like, yeah, it's a growth equity fund. I never spoke to it. I was like, oh, I never spoke to them. I'll just send them a cold email. But if, but what do if, you have to lose? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think that's that's the, I mean, listen, I, I'll, I'll apply it to my life. Half of the guests I've gotten on my podcast have been because you reach out with a very targeted reason for them to be there. Exactly. If, it's, if it's all about you, here's us, 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 us. Okay, fine. Move them to the, I'll review it later pile. But if you understand what they're about and what they care about, um, you know, for me, it's just taking an hour. For you, obviously, yeah, maybe it's, it's an hour for a pitch, right? Yeah. You are just, and I say this to founders all the time, you are trading uh, time for value, right? Yep. And so all you are trying to buy with that email is a half hour or one hour of their time. Yep. Spend time on that email. Yep. And, and you clearly have because it's, you know, worked out in that way. I'm also shameless. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we talked about city growth a little bit. Um, you know, we, we mentioned that the, the moped experiment in places like Austin and places like Miami had its challenges because of just the, the structure of those cities. Um, are there applicable lessons to, to now building in rideshare in those cities or is it a completely different game? Uh, no, there's definitely applicable lessons. Okay. Um, we are very focused on the top five rideshare markets here in the US. Yeah. Because there's a clear delineation between essentially, well, there's New York, which is such a massive market. Yes. Um, and then you have the next two to three markets, which are very large. You can imagine what they are, Bay Area, LA, Chicago. Yep. And then there's two to three beyond that. Um, and that's really it. 
That is what we're targeting. That's what we're going after. Mm -hmm. So just being very clear about the market opportunities where we're building in. But keep in mind, you add up LA, the Bay Area, the New York metro area, that's about low 30% of Uber's top line rideshare revenue in the US. Yeah. Three markets. Yeah. So one third of their top line revenue is three markets. Three markets. Yeah. So you don't need to be everywhere. Right, right. And, yeah. and that, that affords you focus. It affords you to keep operating the way that you're doing with employees and sort of the, the, the same uh, operating principles. Correct. Yeah. We talked also, sorry, no, 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 please, all please. three of those markets too, they happen to be the three largest rideshare markets by far, Bay Area, LA, and New York. All three have mandates to be 100% electric by 2030. So that's the thing. That's that, also just this just tailwind just behind us. Yeah, I'm, okay, I'm going to play the skeptic here. Yeah. These targets and timelines keep getting pushed out. Yep. Right, they, they keep getting negotiated in, in, in the chambers. And so, yes, like it feels really good when there's a, a 2030 mandate. I mean, what, what are we talking about? 80,000 vehicles need to- need In to New York alone. New, yeah. I'm going to play the skeptic here. Six years is not enough time for that change to happen. Yep. And I don't know if the teeth on that legislation are going to be strong enough for folks to, to actually go in and, and make that change. So what convinces you that this is actually going to be the tailwind that, that you believe it will? Yep. Um, I think it's just being very realistic. It's similar to, let's say, what we think about the IRA and what's, what that's going to do for our infrastructure business. Um, we consider it just tailwinds. Mm. It doesn't make or break our business. Mm -hmm. But it is pressure on the entire industry. Yeah. And we're leading from the front. Yeah. And that is always a good place to be. Yeah. So I agree with you. 80,000 vehicles in New York going electric by 2030. Um, yeah, it's a great tailwind, but it, yeah. I, I'm not banking my whole business on, oh my yeah, God, yeah. if that doesn't happen, we don't have a business. Well, and there's not enough incentives on the other side, right? I think the, the IRA was a great example of like, let's lead with the carrot, not the stick. Mm -hmm. And I think the stick is coming, right? We, we've mm -hmm. talked about some of these, these regulations that are happening at the city level or at the state level that maybe aren't happening nationally. The IRA is another one that like, again, I'll, I'll, I'll play the skeptic here, right? Uh, yes, there is a lot of money in there for folks to go EV. And then there were the, well, it actually must be manufacturers with less than a quarter million. So it's like at every stage, you know, we're like almost doing yep. the right thing. We almost have the right incentive and we can all pat ourselves and feel good about it. And politicians can get elected for it. And I, and I feel like I'm, I'm becoming cynical as I'm asking <laughs> this question, but, but realistically, like, is there enough incentive for these changes to happen? Or does that even matter for Revel um, for there to be incentives around broader EV adoption outside of obviously your, your, your own fleet. Yeah. Um, so let's fast forward three to four years. Sure. Right? We're in 2026, 2027. Um, you know, as we go from 1% market share in a city like New York to low teens, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, as 2030 starts to get closer and closer, um, we've gone from 75 charging stalls that we have today to several thousand in New York. Um, that might get some folks to maybe partner us, partner with us in a, in a certain way. Yeah. Um, it just allows us again, us leading from the front on what the future needs to be. is going to put us in a really good position as long as we just continue to grow our business and focus on execution. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what we're doing. Yeah. And on, on the IRA specifically, um, DC needs to be liberal in a lot of their interpretations of the small print or else it's not going to do much. Hmm. So for instance, uh, you know, we're very focused on a 30% investment tax credit for fast charging. 
okay, 30% investment tax credit. They've already announced in June that the tax credit is resellable. Because those a company like me that's not free cash flow positive need with a tax credit. It's yeah. meaningless. Yeah. Okay, now it's sellable. Great. Where do I sell it? <laughs> Where's the market for this? Yeah. Where's the market? Uh, so, you know, one question. Uh, another question, uh, you know, small print says you only get 30% investment tax credit if it's in low-income census tracts or environmental mm -hmm. justice census mm -hmm. tracts. Okay, can you show me the map? Yeah. Where's the map? Yeah. Uh, so I can keep going, but there are no, a lot it, of these small print things. Yeah. So let's just make sure we're liberal with our interpretation of all this small print so that people can actually get the 30% of the Well, and pressure. I think that's somewhat the challenge with the legislation on this side. Not, not to sort of make this a, a, you know, Jay and Frank talk politics, but like we bundle so many things in the way we pass legislation in this country yep. where it's like we have this thing that we know is going to make a difference and now we bundle it with social change. Yep. And, and, and yes, we need that. And I think I agree that that should be passed. Correlating them uh, slows things down in a way that I think is the unintended consequence of like, you feel good about passing it, but it's not actually doing the thing you want it to do. Yep. So let's, let's uh, do our last kind of political angle conversation. Frank gets made mayor for a day, emperor of New York for a day. What is the one piece of legislation and regulation that that you would snap your fingers and pass or on the flip side do away with send it to the shadow realm Ooh, that's really good yeah um so let's take infrastructure first if i was mayor for a day or the commissioner of the puc or sort of king for the day what do you want to call it um for those that don't know infrastructure build outs one of the problem is power upgrades because the way utilities in this country are set up for power upgrades is on a multi-year timeline. Because if you're building a school, you're building a new condo complex, you're building a skyscraper, you don't need power in six months. It's going to be a five-year project. We'll get you power in three years. No one cares. Everything's fine. Yep. We're trying to put fast charging in the ground in six months, though. I can't wait three years. Yeah. That doesn't work. So the way utilities have traditionally built out the grid, brought power to locations, it doesn't work for fast charging build outs. Mm -hmm. So if I was mayor for a day, I'd say if it's publicly accessible, if it's fast charging for everybody, put it to the front of the queue. They get power for anybody else. Yeah. Because they need it now. Yeah. Because the business model doesn't work without it. Yeah. Right. So that's what I would do. Okay. Fair enough. I think that would be, in terms of like policy, yeah, yeah. if they did that federally, Fast charging infrastructure or just any sort of public charging infrastructure gets moved to the front of the queue for all utilities everywhere, that would do 10x more than the IRA. Wow. That one sentence. That's it. Yeah. And 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 what's the the pushback to doing that, you think? I don't know. Yeah. Not enough incentive? Not enough lobbying? <laughs> I, I mean, listen, you know, utilities have a guaranteed rate of return in their rate base. Yeah. So what do they care? Yeah. I don't think it's them. Yeah. So... I think you'll get pushback of, oh, why are we incentivizing fast charging infrastructure? We need power for housing. Yeah. So you can always take the don't do anything good for them because we need to do good for them too. But again, the economics of build out for fast charging infrastructure or just any charging infrastructure, we need things done quicker. So you just can't get the business deals done on the real estate side. Yeah. Whereas if you're building a school or a condo complex, it doesn't matter if you wait three years because nothing gets done in less than three years. Yeah. So anyway, that's just the... It's, it's, it's a system designed for a different problem. Exactly. Right? Yeah. No one's ever needed three megawatts of power immediately. Yeah. yeah. That's never a problem they've had to solve for. As you interface with the grid, I mean, one of the things that kind of gets, you know, the soundbite that gets bandied about is, oh, you know, if we added all these EVs to our grid tomorrow, or, or if I could snap a finger and change all 80,000 cars to EVs, our grid would break down immediately, and we would not be able to sustain this. H how do you manage your business with sort of the 
underlying challenges of a 50-year-old, 50-plus-year-old American grid system? And, and where do those challenges interface with what you do? Yeah. So as we build out our network of fast charging, and let's just take New York again, um, we fast forward 10 years. I think of our company as more of an energy company 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. You have connections to the grid throughout the entire city, the most congested grids in the country, which are urban areas. And now I've got connections to that grid all throughout the city. And guess what? I've got electrons on wheels going around that I can pump back into the grid. Hmm. If the technology actually existed mm -hmm. and if the business was actually there. Yeah. Um, so it gets me excited, but there's a lot that needs to happen before you can have bi-directional charging everywhere and think of electric vehicles as assets to the grid, not liabilities. Right. Because they're not just drawing from, but they go Let's return. push power back into the grid. Yeah. I mean, that is common sense. I mean, that's, that's kind of really powerful when you think about it. Yeah. Because all it is is a battery, right? As an EV, you can discharge and you can draw. And yeah. so you should- And I think people forget too how much power are in EVs, mm -hmm. how much just straight up energy is in those batteries. Yeah. Um, I remember my team did a calc once where, you know, there's about 2 million vehicles in New York. Um, all you need is 100,000 electric vehicles. And if they were fully charged, 100,000, so 120th of the vehicle supply, that's enough power to run New York City in a day. Wow. So it just gives you an idea of just like the magnitudes that we're talking about here. Yeah. There's a lot of energy in car batteries. Yeah. Um, so in a world where everything is bi-directional, um, you have a network where, wait, is Revel just a massive distributed power plant? Yeah. Right? It's, that's a very cool future. A lot needs to happen though. Yeah, yeah, of course. One step at a time. Yeah, totally. Um, so I'll, I'll um, kind of get to kind of where, where we like to close. But before I do that, Looking ahead, you've had a couple of really exciting years getting in this rideshare world. If I look ahead to, we're having this conversation a year from now. Um, what 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 has you most excited? You know, what's what's gone right in the next year that has you really excited? We're in true growth mode right now, yeah. which is a really exciting place to be. Yeah, started with fifty cars. Eighteen months later, we had maybe one hundred and fifty. Now, in the last six months, we're now at five fifty. Yeah, and now I'm thinking, where are we in twelve months from now? So we are way past pilot right now. Yeah. Now we're talking about how do we take market share from the incumbents? It's a very different conversation. Yep. And we've gone from one charging installation, happened to be the largest in the Northeast outside of Tesla. Uh, now we have four. Now a year from now, we're going to have maybe 15 in New York. Yeah. Each of these on their own would be the largest charging station in, in, in New York City. Yeah. So a year from now, we just, we're on a really interesting pathway in terms of just you know, I talk about this flywheel to a lot of folks around building out the charging infrastructure, bringing utilization in the form of rideshare, which guess what allows us to build more charging infrastructure, which allows us to scale more rideshare. And that flywheel is starting to spin right now. Yeah. So 12 months from now, it's just going to be exciting to see where that flywheel is continuing to spin. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, I, I like to close with all of our guests on, on this question because, you know, fundamentally, everything that we've talked about today impacts the way that we interact with, with our broader climate, right? Bringing EVs to a city like New York, really championing, I think, um, as I do, and obviously you do, this transition uh, away from, from fossil uh, fuel and, and sort of internal combustion engine cars. And yet we are, I think, painfully aware of the challenges or lack of action that happens in here. So I think you're a fundamentally optimistic guy. What is the thing that keeps you hopeful and optimistic about this broader fight against climate change with everything that you've seen? 
So I will just say, you better be optimistic as a, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, because I'm not sure what else you got, right? Yeah. The world always seems like it's stacked against you. So in terms of optimism around climate, um, it makes me think of a, a story where there was you know, a rough week at Revel, and I'm texting my older sister. Um, and she just writes back, Frank, you can't stop the future. So that's what gives me optimism, because you can't stop this. Yeah. Cleaner air, quieter cities. Um, what's there not to like? Yeah. This is where we got to go. Yeah. You just had a son, yeah. six months old. Yeah. You think he wants to go to a dirty New York? No. He wants a quiet, clean New York. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a, that's a future I think we're all really excited for. Look, I, I mean, you, 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 know, you brought up a beer. Like it, since he's been born, I think I've found so much more connection to my work. And I'm such a small part of it, right? I'm, I'm a capital allocator to companies that are trying to do audacious things at the earliest stages. But with each of those conversations, it's no longer a hypothetical. Hey, what would, you know, what would be the world that I leave to my future kids? I've been in New York 15 years. What, what is the New York that my future kids look like? I, it's, he's real. He's here. Yeah. And he lives in New York. And there is work that needs to be done to, to make the city um, a better place for him and, and, and his siblings and, you know, his cohort. And so um, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. Like, I think so much of the work that we do, and, and we started this conversation saying, look, I don't think Revel started as a climate company. And yet here you are, I think, at the vanguard of, of a lot of these changes. Um, finding that connection to that work, I think, uh, uh, keeps bringing hope and optimism. Yeah. Yeah. Frank, this has been a, a fantastic conversation um, and, and I think really eye-opening about the scale of the changes uh, that Revel is bringing uh, that I think even I wasn't read into despite having, I think, followed your, your journey very closely. I want to thank you so much for, for joining me on Climb today. I appreciate it, Jay. Thanks.